is Tuesday, September the 5th, 2023. Let us gather together and experience the goodness of God. I'm Pastor Trey Comstock. We begin with our scripture of the week, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and a piece entitled by me, A Tale of at Least Two MacGuffins. Then I will be joined by Pastor Emily Larson to talk scripture and how to beat the great pastor resignation. But first, a reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, and to bring them up and out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites. The cry of Israel has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they will ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. Exodus contains at least a couple of MacGuffins. The prolific filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock had a particular fondness for the term and popularized it. MacGuffin is an object that can get a story going, but isn't particularly significant in and of itself. It's the Maltese Falcon of Maltese Falcon fame. In Star Wars terms, the Death Star isn't a MacGuffin. It's too important. R2-D2 is the MacGuffin. Protecting him and getting him to the Rebellion drives the plot of A New Hope, but in the end, He's just a common astromech droid that everyone happens to be looking for. The Holy Grail of Arthurian legend, Monty Python, and Indiana Jones fame is one of literature's great MacGuffins. We have so many quests to find it, but the result of the quests 
seldom match the effort. We get a lot of, it's just a cup, or it's unfindable, or it's not a physical object at all. No matter the actual outcome, the quest for the grail matters far more than the actual drinking vessel. One of Exodus's MacGuffins even gets a starring role in Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark drives so much of the plot of the second half of Exodus, Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel. We get into how to house the Ark, who can approach the Ark, when can you approach the Ark, how will the Ark cross into the Promised Land, how will the Ark get rescued from the Philistines, and who can build a final home for the Ark, aka the Temple. However, in and of itself, it's just a fancy box containing some tablets. With the destruction of the first temple and the exile, it disappears from the story. But the worship of God continues. Of course, until Indian company find it in the 1940s and we store it in the Smithsonian. We get the other great MacGuffin of Exodus here at the burning bush. The staff of Moses slash Aaron. The conversation between God and Moses goes on for two whole chapters, Exodus 3 and 4. Moses, clearly nervous about going before it and your godlike human to demand things, keeps pushing God for more assistance. He gets the staff as a result. As it says in Exodus chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground, and it became a snake, and Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it, and it became a staff in his hands. After Moses takes on the mission of freeing God's people, the staff, now wielded by Aaron, performs for Pharaoh just as God described, and gets a minor role in initiating the turning the Nile to blood and the plague of gnats. When God's people arrive at the edge of the Red Sea, with Pharaoh's army close at hand, the staff gets its most iconic moment, as described in Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward, but lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. We get the key image of Moses, staff in hand, parting a sea and putting it back right on top of Pharaoh's army. In Numbers chapter 20, where Moses gets so frustrated with God and God's people that God disinvites him to the promised land, Moses strikes the offending rock with the staff. Much like R2-D2 weaving his way through every mainline Star Wars film, the staff keeps making a great MacGuffin because it keeps showing up at pivotal moments to help push the plot forward. It's also just a stick of wood outside of its involvement in the grand drama of a contest between God and Pharaoh. It has no innate relevancy. When God appears to Moses, Moses works as a shepherd for his father-in-law. Of course, he and any other self-respecting shepherd would have a staff with him. As an ordinary rod from a tree, it has no inherent magic. We don't believe in magic items. The bit about the Ark being able to zap Nazis is nowhere in the Bible. The Ark is just a pretty box, and the staff is just an normal shepherd's tool. Their plot-driving power stems from their ability to point out the power and presence of God. The Ark forms the base of the mercy seat, or the earthly location of God's presence. 
we care about the box because God uses the box as a chair to have manifestation in the realm of mortals. When the Levites approach the box with fear for their lives, gilded wood has nothing to do with it. They rightly fear the unstoppable creator of the universe who uses the box as an earthly throne. The staff serves as a pointer to show the directionality of God's power. By giving the name of God there at the burning bush, God commits God's power to the freeing of God's people. This is what's happening in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Moses and the cause of liberating God's people from slavery constitute the first use of God's full name and thus full power in protection of God's people. The MacGuffin of the staff merely highlights what God does to overcome Pharaoh, who believed himself to be a god. In this way, even Moses, the great prophet, is perhaps himself merely a MacGuffin. He's just a man doing the talking. Seeking, calling, and having a human as voice box drives the plot forward. But the plot is about the power of God doing the defeating of Pharaoh, not the work of a mere mortal. God stars in Exodus, with Moses, Staff, and Ark as supporting cast. God's the hero. Pharaoh's the villain. Everyone else is a plot-driving MacGuffin. So I'm not sure I meant to do movie bits two weeks in a row, but that's just what happened. Last week, it was Ocean's Eleven. Uh, this week, it was largely Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, framed, you know. Um, my, my dad who had listened to the sermon, I made a small Raiders of the Lost Ark joke in the sermon. Um, my dad was like, hey, you didn't bring up, the, we do know where the Ark of the Covenant is. I'm like, oh, no, no, don't worry. I got you, bro. Watch the other thing. Watch the other thing. Wait for the podcast. I talk about the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is in the Smithsonian um, and that it is able to zap Nazis. Um, because of course it is. Because of course Indiana it is. Jones proved that. <laughs> Proves that it's in the, you know, uh, the, you know, the Holy Grail's not there, but it did heal Sean Connery. Um, right. And, again, like a weird amount of Indiana Jones in this week's content. I, I did, again, this was not, I don't plan these like week to week. I plan the scriptures in advance and the topics, but I have no idea what I'm going to write until I sit down to write it. And this week it was about like MacGuffins, but the MacGuffins, the, the, merely point to what God is doing. And then the sermon kind of, you know, takes that and runs, actually, the sermon ends up taking the whole arc of the Old and New Testament is all about God's presence with God's people, right? And this whole thing about this journey in Exodus is not about what did Moses do. It's about the presence and power of God abiding with God's people and where the presence and power abiding with God's people shows up isn't actually with the tablets coming down. That's merely sealing the deal. That's merely giving words to the covenant. The actual like God abiding with God's people shows up here in Exodus chapter three 
in four, but like here in one through 15 in where we get that, you know, the aptly, you know, the heavy a name with enough theological weight, the tetragrammaton, right? Gotta the, use the tetragrammaton yeah, to get it. your seminary education word in there. It's for on the this bingo. Podcast. It's on the bingo card, the tetragrammaton, you know, yeah. the, f- the four letter name that ends up becoming the, you know, the, the sermon version of this, which is also on our YouTube channel. Um, youtube.com slash servants now um is you know frames a lot of this is the this is all about the presence of god and this is you know i we showed it in worship we showed a clip um from the prince of egypt a movie that i I, frankly i like um have always liked but theologically it's horrific now it's a dreamworks film rather than you know like whatever um so fine but it does the thing that we all do we like superheroes and so we frame it as like a hero's journey it's not right the uh, exodus is not a hero's journey moses is just a another MacGuffin, right to move the plot along um he is like a stand-in for the audience he is just watching essentially watching what god is doing God's the hero of the story. Just don't tell that to the people at DreamWorks or to Charlton Heston, you know, all of the Ten Commandments. You got, you got to have the hero's journey story, but you're right. It's the MacGuffin. They are all just character devices used to promote the real story, which is this presence of God coming down to be with God's people. Well, right. And they all lose, like one of the things that, um, that, they talk about with the technical of a MacGuffin is the MacGuffin has to eventually lose significance, right? Eventually R2-D2, which by the way, that's official. George Lucas declared R2-D2 a MacGuffin. That's not my favorite MacGuffin. He's my my favorite of all time. So this is where George Lucas and Alfred Hitchcock disagree with one another. Alfred Hitchcock believes that the audience should not care about a MacGuffin. And George Lucas is on record saying, no, 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 you should care about that MacGuffin. Um, That MacGuffin's name is R2. Um, But but like at some point, like R2 is there, but the narrative is so much bigger than R2-D2, Right. Um, in the same way that like the staff is there and the ark is there and Moses is there, but then they all recede in the background, right? He, Moses doesn't make it in the com- promised land. This was never about Moses, right? right? Moses dies. You know, we could, you know, we, we, we have talked about, I have talked about why, you know, it's in numbers 20, but like in the past year, I even mean, think even bring it up, um, in the piece, but like Moses doesn't get into the promised land. Right. Um, he's just another MacGuffin. We want the hero. Okay, cool. You've got the hero. We just missed the hero. <laughs> because the actual hero here is God's God. presence. Coming it's God's in. Presence. It's I am, right? It's I am, right. It is the like, this was one of, you know, a lot of, a lot of seminary felt, you know, is, is, is what is what it is, right? But I'll net, you know, we, in my, you know, first year of seminary, um, my uh, Dr. Lemon, my Dr. Lemon, my Old Testament professor, really went after the Prince of Egypt, right? Like he, like part of my shtick is I, I, I learned it from you. I learned it from Dr. Lemon um, at Candler um, to like, you know, there's the song, the Mariah Carey song after they, right. th- there can be miracles when you believe, which is fine. Um, there are also, 
There also can be miracles when you don't believe. It has when you don't do believe. It has it, nothing. It's really to do not with up you. to you. It's not up to you. But the actual light he hates is who knows what miracles you can achieve. We can achieve when we believe. To which he goes, they achieved nothing. They really didn't do anything. It they was didn't do not anything. up to the people of God. It was right. up to God. <laughs> right. Like the stick is in Moses's hand. I get it. But like. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. And I've been guilty of saying the phrase, Moses parts the Red Sea. Moses does not part the Red Sea. Right. God parts the Red Sea. Moses doesn't defeat Pharaoh. God defeats Pharaoh. This is not a hero's journey. This is a contest between gods. Right? And I, I, I don't want to, I'm not going down a weird polytheism route, I promise. Egyptian pharaohs declared themselves man-gods in the same way that Roman Empire emperors did, right? It, you know, right. Or the same way that Louis XIV essentially did. It's a really great shtick if you can, instead of working for religion, declare yourself the religion. Um, as, uh, as a man who went on to found a religion said, you want to become a billionaire, start your own religion. That man started Scientology. He died a billionaire. No, no, right. he didn't die. He's coming back. He's on a mission. Exactly. exactly. I'm sorry. He's L. Ron Hubbard is not dead. He is on a mission, right? Like if you, like, sure. as L. Ron, as L. Ron Hubbard proved, you want to die or not die, a billionaire. Um, where is Shelley? Um, if you want to, if you want to die, a billionaire, found your own religion. And so that's essentially what the Egyptian pharaohs did, right? L. Right. Ron Hubbard didn't make up this idea. So this is truly a story of Yahweh versus Pharaoh, right? right. This is that's, Battle of the Titans. That's, it's the Battle of the Titans. And it, it much like, you know, we talked about a few weeks back with uh, Elijah versus Baal, the priests of Baal. This is another one. This is the, like, prototype, right? Because Elijah's much, much later, you know, thousand years right. later. Um, but even is, then, it's not Elijah doing the thing. This right. is God doing the thing. Through right. Elijah, right? Elijah's the prophet's the mouthpiece, right? Right. That's the thing. The prophet is the prophet is just a talking MacGuffin, like R two D two is a talking MacGuffin. They more articulate, although R two can say a lot mm-hmm. and does and does <laughs> right. and is comically translated by C three PO. Right. Right. Well, you know that is one of my other one of my favorite tropes in movies is the character that everyone on screen understands, but you do not. And mm-hmm. so that is Chewbacca and R2. Yes. Um, and that's the amazing Yen in the uh, Oceans movies, right? Yes. He speaks, he only ever speaks in Chinese, largely speaks in Chinese. And then everyone just understands, ev- everyone on the Oceans team just speaks Chinese, which I find very inclusive. Um, but he is also, he is, R- he is R2-D2 and Chewbacca, the character yes. that everyone knows, uh, but you do not. Um, yep. Yeah, it is that, like, this is the archetype for the mouthpiece is showing you something. And we like to latch on to the character we can identify with because we cannot ourselves identify with God. That's the point of Jesus, right? Like, you know, the, but, like, that is not the mover and shaker. Leap forward to Jesus, by the way, also a contest between gods. It's Jesus versus the Roman emperor. Yep. Right? We don't tell that story that way, right? Um, except that is, to me, what is happening. But this at that time, time in history. Mm-hmm. At that time, but at that time, it is really Jesus doing it because he's Emmanuel, God among us. 
Yes. Like, a lot of the, like, if you think of the parallels, right, between Jesus and Moses, like, one of the things that the gospel writers are trying to tell you is, like, hey, we're doing a Moses again, but more so. And how are we doing a Moses again, but more so? Um, It is, this time, the person who's doing the talking isn't a MacGuffin. He is actually the presence of God with us. He's Um, actually the hero of the story. He's actually the hero of the story. Um, and so that's why these are Greek biographies. These are a hero's journey. Um, they are, but that is because Jesus is more than a vessel who stops being important midway through the story. He is the right. story. He is yes. God among us. Here, he is given the divine name, um, which as Harry Potter taught us, fear of a name inspires fear of a thing. In this case, it is pow- there is power in names, right? Um, J.K. Rowling didn't make that up. Um, that go that is you know ancient, um, because to have the name of something is to have a piece of their power. You can direct yep. that name. That's why we don't take the Lord's name in vain. As I said in the sermon, it's not about not swearing in front of your grandmother. By all means, swear in front of your grandmother. Have fun. That's between or you and your grandmother. Don't because that's you know not polite. But you know, but that's not what the, there's there's not a Ten Commandment about not swearing in front of your grandmother, right? Like right. it is. Don't misdirect this incredible power that you've been given by having yes. the divine name. That's what it means to not take the Lord's name in vain. I love that the naming of something can either can give you part of its power. That's the same concept of like, have you ever heard, you know, when people make inappropriate jokes to women, if you ask them to explain it to them, then it loses its power because yeah. it's not funny. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Cause it's not actually funny. It's the same. Um, have you watched the Barbie movie yet? No, I haven't. <sighs> I have, I've heard amazing things. I chose, you, op- I chose Oppenheimer. I, Oppenheimer. I, had, I still need to go see Oppenheimer. I, I had, I had, and this, uh, this is probably a man. <laughs> this is probably like where, where there's a male female divide. If you run this math, right. <laughs> I will tell you, you know, they both are going to make like a billion dollars. Shout out to both of those movies no i chose barbie's beating out oppenheimer right now as it should again i really enjoyed i had the opportunity to see oppenheimer in 70 millimeter imax while i was on our trip to dallas and so i i picked one and i i didn't pick wrong but i need i do need to see barbie anyways barbie you do because barbie does a lot of the same thing of naming the things right? right to name the patriarchy to you know, in Barbie land, they have, you know, like a lawyer that says, I can hold logic and emotion at the same time. And that makes me stronger for it. Right. You know, things that you're like, yes, exactly. Um, or, you know, you get to be a person just because you get to exist. Right. Like there's very good themes in the Barbie movie, um, but it's because it, it names the thing. Right. Right. So it gives the power because it names the thing. And so that's is just a good example of, yes, so we've been given the name of God here, um, which is the power, right? In whose power do you go to Pharaoh, Moses? Well, you go in mine. Right. God's, I am, right? And it's not, so. and you, again, you are, this is, this is not a gift that anyone else had been given to this point, right? right. No one else gets this name. This is... This is one of those, like, really crucial biblical turning points um, that we, we teach badly. 
um, because we take all of the the weight out of it. Um, you know, I, I, I suspect, I don't actually know this, but I suspect just my own lived experience that most Christians don't know God's name, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like most Christians have made it through however many decades and they don't actually know what God's name is. They just think, no, God's name is God. And then they get really mad when like people say Allah, which is just God in Arabic. Which right? is just God. It's just yes. God. Like, uh, by the way, uh, uh, Arabic speaking Christians pray to Allah. Allah, uh, yes. In the same way that we pray to God, you know, people in Spanish pray to Dios, whatever, right? Right. Um, that most people don't know that, well, they don't know the name of God and they don't know that Jesus is named Joshua. Right, like these are just things that we have, like, and we lose something. Well, we lose a piece of God's power by not understanding that God has a name, right? And right. a name that, like, can be traced back into, like, there were Canaanite people thinking about Yahweh before Abraham. Like, this is a name that exists before this kind of hinge point, you know, 1300 is 3,500 years ago. Um, there are like there were this name was out there. They weren't real sure like who this entity was. Was Yahweh a storm god? You know, we got a lot of sky stuff, and so was this like a storm god? And you know, and as you like watch Canaanite into Hebrew into Israelite culture develop, it becomes clear a that there's one god. That one god is named Yahweh because Yahweh gave that name to Moses and we carry and we become the people, you know, we God's people become the carriers of this name. But it's, it's so much easier to focus on the bright, shiny burning bush than it is to focus on what's actually really happening here, which is the power of God, God's name coming to Moses, coming to Moses, Being, being gifted to Moses by God. And thus, we are watching that God is going to deck Pharaoh, right? It is an action movie. Um, It is God v. Pharaoh. And God wins handily, right? Um, You know, this is the, like, you know, the the end of the story where, like, there's all these chariots, which are, like, the stealth fighters of the ancient world. And, like, you know, there's the, the like, you know, part of uh, Egyptian military dominance was was chariot driven. They had these ama- this amazing technology that this like ragtag group of recently former slaves just don't have. Like, there's a lot of them, but they you know, they don't have anything. You know, they they've got you know unleavened bread. We're gonna pelt them with pita. Like, what are we like? What are we gonna do? Um, <laughs> and Moses waves a stick. God parts a sea. And then yes. crashes that sea back down on Pharaoh. You know, did you know that we are still using measurements from chariots? I did actually. Yeah, yes, like like train tracks and yeah. chariots. You know, you know the 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 story between the stair steps between chariots and train tracks. No, but, but I, I do. But by all means, explain it. Explain it for okay. people. So chariots, Roman chariots, become Roman roads. Uh, ruts become Roman roads, Roman roads become, you know, basically the, the parallels between what makes our, I forget what the actual metric size of our. Presumably it's a meter, right? No, 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 no. no. It's like two points. It's, it's whatever two horses are. Right. Right. 
two horses could fit, and so that's where your wheel wells were, and so that's where the ruts were in the road, and so that's when Roman roads got perfected was for the chariot, and that's what continued on for commerce and trade, and now our current modern-day train tracks are still <laughs> two horse widths. Two horse widths apart, uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Crazy. Turns so crazy. out. Turns out. <laughs> um, you know, and that's like... A foot is standardized. I forget who it was, but it's standard off of some king's foot. And it used to be yeah. that a foot would change. And then eventually it got standardized, but it was literally someone's foot. There was someone who is the ideal foot. Metrics are weird, man. No, yeah, no, they're really weird, right? And, like, you understand that, like, so 100 degrees Celsius is boiling point. So they wanted that when they're coming up with Celsius, they thought that boiling point should be 100, uh, which should be 100, right? And freezing is zero. And yeah. freezing is zero. Okay. And so um, Fahrenheit, I believe they were trying to capture, they missed, they were trying to capture human body temp as 100. Now, this is a long time ago. <laughs> That's really variable, right? But like, right. they were trying to do human, so like, you just have to, you know. You have to draw a line somewhere, right? These are not... And this is like... There's this whole like very strange field of study that is trying to objectively define measurement, right? So what, what is a foot objectively? Like, and so it's like usually like how many atoms of this at this temperature, right? I'm going to make... Like right. how many atoms of titanium um, at 72 degrees Celsius, Right. Um, and that's a foot, right? How do you atomically define a foot? And then they're like, how do you atomically define a second? Like it all gets like, it's the right. X percentage of this half-life because it was all just like stick your finger in the wind. How big is the King's foot? You know, are cubits, you know, from elbow to wrist, right? Yes. Yes. Whose elbow, whose wrist? The King's. Cubits. Um, cubits. Weird stuff, feet, man. Yards. You know, this is a, you know, Anyways. Whose yard is three feet, you know? Whose yard is three feet. Um, whatever. <laughs> and, yeah, it's all ludicrous. But, yeah, so it turns out that, like, with these, like, these chariots, back to chariots. Back to chariots. <laughs> these chariots are, like, incredibly powerful technology and will remain so for another thousand years. Um, and God just wipes them out, right? And so... The, the larger point I, you know, I have been trying to make with this, and it, it is like every preacher probably preaches like five things in rotation, and this is one of, the, this is one of my top five, is, hey, this thing that we do has a lot of power behind it, it mm -hmm. turns out, right? Like, we are perpetually guilty of making our problems huge and God small, right? And that is the, like, you know, crew in Exodus, guilty of this over and over again, right? But back to Moses and the stick, right? Like, they get to the edge of the Red Sea. We've are, the plagues have already happened. Um, we, we've, we've seen blood and gnats and death and... Frogs and frogs boils and, and death. Boils and, yeah. and all this. Um and so they've already seen some, like, real fireworks, right? And they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and they go, what, we could have just died in our houses. What are we going to do? We're just going to die? Um, and again, they make, they, they th see their problems as too big, and God as too small, and then, you know, Moses points a stick. Moses reports to God, hey, we're 
uh, screwed. We've got a real problem. Um, it's real bad. Um, and God says, no, it's fine. <laughs> Watch this. And, and the thing is, is that they're looking at a representation. I mean, they've got the pillar of fire. Uh-huh. They've uh-huh. got the cloud. They've got, I mean, they've watched these. It's easy to look at them and go, what were they thinking? How did yeah. they not believe that God could get them through or around or defeat Pharaoh's army? Sure. Because they'd already seen all the plagues, because they'd already seen the power of God in all of these different manifestations over however much time. And they're looking at a, a pillar and a, a, you know, a cloud and fire, and and they're still sitting there at the edge of the Red Sea going, well, woe well, is me. Guess we're going to die now. And, and, and let's be clear, they keep doing it. Like one of the like refrains in Exodus is, and this is the most realistic thing in Exodus, it's just no matter how many times, you know, this is this is what leads to Moses in the waters of Mirabah getting wildly frustrated with everyone and not getting the promised land. Because once right. again, they're like, are we going to die? No, here's water. Have you seen the rest of this movie? Let me play it for you. Charlton Heston does a great job. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or like, you know, they build the golden calf because Moses is taking too long. Right. Right. Like, so this is not actually on them. This is all of us, right? Like, right. we, just as we have had the divine name for this long, we have underestimated its power for this long. Yeah. And we should probably stop, right? Because God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, who, you know, went on a cross, died, and came back, who sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is still here. That's the same entity. Yes. God still got this. Right. Um, It's, it's a good reminder for all of us when we sit there and go, woe is me, whatever our problem is. And most of us are not enslaved by an Egyptian Pharaoh. Right. Or like being chased Um, by a thousand chariots. Right. Well, our our right. problems are, are minuscule, right, compared right. to some of these bigger things that we see. Um, you know, most of us are not facing slavery and death and destruction. Some of us are, in a real right. way, yeah, yeah. Um, facing death, facing different challenges in our lives. But, but God still got this, no matter what that is, no matter what your Egyptian chariots are in your life, God still got this. God I, still got you. Right, and we we make every, so every generation like every generation thinks it's the end of time, right? Mm-hmm. Thinks they live in the worst time. Right. Um, you know, in one of my favorite series titles ever, I talk about it with some frequency. Go to uh, Facebook.com/slash Palestine Grace. You might be able to still find. Sure, it looks like the end times. You um, can. I, I guess it's on YouTube it as well. Um, yeah. So I. I did this series on Revelation. It's the middle of the pandemic. I, but like, as we'll talk about in the next segment, we had to go back to work. Um, and I, I wrote this series where we did a 12 week study of Revelation called Sure Looks Like the End Times. Right. And what you realize is that everyone always thinks that they live in the worst era. And what Revelation wants to remind you is yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, it always kind of looks like the end times out there. But part of that is because every generation seems to end up convinced, as our Israelite friends in the desert did, that their problems are finally the ones 
that God can't overcome. The most recent whatever is secularization, the secular world. It's, ah, there's, you know, church. Postmodern and Postmodernism. It's just church is just going to decline until it dies. Well, with that attitude, you're darn right. Um, Yes, with that attitude, I guess God is God is dead, right? Like in some ways, this is what Nietzsche meant when he says God is dead, and we killed it, right? Because we just we act like God is so small, and like God our, does not still have the power that God had right. when God parted the Red Sea, right? Like there is not there is not Old Testament God and New Testament God. Right. That's uh, that's Marcionism. That was a declared a heresy. It's not two entities. It's one. Um, and God didn't stop being powerful at the advent of the motor car or the nuclear bomb or the Internet or whatever or TikTok, um, the godless <laughs> wasteland. Um, it is not a godless wasteland. There are no godless wastelands. Right. Right. God, did, this is. You know, I, I I always appreciate how realistic the old both testaments are of, of people, right? Um, yes, that it still shows humanity's worst, all right. of our doubts, all of our fears. Yeah. There's nothing new. We have the same doubts. We have the same fears. We have the same worries. We have all of the same human frailties that we did, that the Egyptians did, that the Israelites did throughout the Old Testament. Um, that the disciples did yep. in the time of Jesus, when you see them falter, when you see them fail, when you see them doubt, when you see them look at God and go, well, I guess God's not going to get us out of this one. Um, and yet God ev- does. And yet every time God does, right? Yes. And so this is, if you find yourself in a doubting place, you're in good company, including Moses, Right. You see some of this in this text. He's standing there. The bush is burning. The voice of God is speaking. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right? And this keeps going, you know, for the whole morning, the chapter and a half. For chapters three and four are him going, you sure? Okay, I'll give you your brother to help you. Are you sure? Take the stick. <laughs> <laughs> and then God hits Moses in the head with his walking stick now. With a literal stick. With a literal (laughs) stick, right? So you even see it here with Moses. But in the end, that power that Moses got never went away. It never did. It's still here. The power and presence of God is still here. Looks different, moves different, no no doubt. But it's that same God and that same power. Um, That's as good a place as any to call this segment a segment um and uh move on to our next segment uh that we call how to restart a church um we're gonna take a quick break after some very browsing theme music uh we're gonna talk um about a church post pandemic um and the great pastor resignation uh we will be right back And we're back uh, to talk about church restarting. Um, and actually, in this case, to talk about one, like some of the 
key things that are happening. So the I'm going to have to look down at my notes because there are things I need to say correctly. Um, the Hartford Institute uh, for uh, Religion Research um, put out a study. I, I We're going to have this in the show notes. There's a, a religion news service article kind of summarizing their findings. But it was look, basically this research project looked at over 4,000 churches. And, tr- and it's a five-year study to try and see what has been the impact of the pandemic on American religion, right? Like on American churches. And like, because we talk about this anecdotally and, and you know, and, and Emily and I have been on the business for long enough that like, you know, we were working together at a church during the start of the pandemic. Um, and what's interesting about this study is it basically says that largely we're back. Largely, we are back to more or less the problems we had pre-pandemic. This year, giving is up 25% from where it was in 2020. Um, The average church size is back to more or less pre-pandemic levels. Some churches are even growing a little more than they were pre-pandemic. Like You can slice these numbers a little bit, but basically like, like things are on the upswing in terms of giving, um, giving especially, but even church attendance is, it had, let's remember, it wasn't like there was some glory days of church attendance happening in 2020, in, nope. in February of 2020. Some of us were having a little better time. Um, but generally speaking, religious last year was on the decline. Those trends still exist. But what the pandemic did to churches seems to largely be coming out in the wash. People are coming back to church. Pretty much everyone's back in person. In person seems to be the, a mixture of in person with an online option seems to be the way to go. And, and so the, again, not to, I don't want to dig deep in, too deep in these percentages, but essentially looking at 4,000 churches across 58 denominations over sampling 20 of the major denominations Largely speaking, things are back to normal, what they were pre-pandemic. We lived through this thing, and individual church experience may be different. Certainly, actually, I was about to say our church is smaller. That's wrong. Our church is far bigger um, than it was pre-pandemic because our Spanish service— we're going to do the third anniversary of our Spanish service this Sunday— I'm preaching in Spanish. I'm mildly terrified. It's only the third time in my life I've preached in Spanish. Um, you got this. I, or I've got something, and they're very nice to me. Um, uh, Pastor General, that's a senior pastor in Spanish. They're very nice to me. Um, I, I wave a lot. I smile a lot. I'm the tech guy who does the benediction um, and is apparently in charge, although doesn't look it. Um, anyways, um, like so, our church is our church would fit neatly into this. Our giving is not up twenty five percent, but we are largely it's almost entirely a different set of people. But yeah, so we're back. Except hmm, pastors are not are back. not we're not are back not back and are not. Coming back, you have you see this called the Great Resignation of so pastors. So in, in and so I'm going to actually here I'm going to give some of their numbers. Um, that in 2021, um, 
Uh, here we go. No. Never mind. I've, anyways, in 2021, something like two-thirds of pastors had never thought about leaving. In 2023, and this, is, this, this data point would be from May of 2023, only 49% of pastors had never thought about leaving, right? A lot more of us have thought about leaving this field. Even now that things are back, pastors are now even still at higher rates than when things were actually bad. Things were worse than they are. Right, things are better. Things are not good. Religiosity on the decline. Okay, so that makes all of our jobs were hard five years ago, not just three years ago. But even so, but that's the background noise of you know, for some of us, our whole careers. You know, I I I started as pastor in 2013. Right, like I, you know, that's just life. That's right, just that's just life. life as a pastor. And and you see that attitude from people of well, but you knew what you were getting into. No. You no. you knew you knew what you were getting into. You knew what you were signing up for. You knew it was going to be hard, but we didn't. Not we didn't. to this degree. Not, not to, this, to degree. this. And so that that shows that there and, and like this gives numbers to something that we're going to give narrative to that something happened to us. We went through a thing, right? And there is real trauma from that on top of that we're living in a much more divided country where it is just harder to stand up in front of people and say a thing right fundamentally like proclamation is part of the job whether you proclaim on a podcast or you proclaim in a sermon or or however you do like proclamation is a part of a pastor's job it's like this one of the core competencies it's never been harder or maybe not never but it is extremely hard in this moment on top of the trauma that we lived through, um, to then be able to publicly proclaim anything and be perceived as authoritative and neutral. Now, some pastors have and given neutral. up and neutral. Some neutral pastors have given is the up hard on, thing. Yeah, have given up on the idea of neutrality. And but then this is going to stray very close to bounds. I don't normally talk about. Um, I I have political opinions. I have a degree in not only do I have political opinions, I have a degree in political science. I don't bring them in to my work here. Not overtly anyways, right? You know, the closest I got is we did, a, we hosted a like, hey, people should vote event um, a week and a half back. Um, that's as close as I get because there's value in someone coming to you and knowing that you can be neutral to them, right? This is a pastoral care thing. Um, very few of us live in monocrop political con- congregations. Anyways, yeah. so- this that was done. a that, that was a, a pitfall that I fell into when I first started preaching mm-hmm. weekly, yeah. um, and and I really was trying to be very careful with my words. And apparently, I was because there were people on opposite ends of the political spectrum. Um, and I remember very clearly one Sunday after I preached, I had each of them come up to me separately and go, "Ooh, I liked your sermon. I should send it to this yeah. political figure." And then yeah. the other side yeah, uh, said, oh, I well liked done. your sermon and what well you done. said without saying it. And I said, oh, okay. Right. That was not intentional. Yeah. But I didn't say any of those things. But they interpreted it as, you know, yes, and you're on my side of this political issue. And I, you know. 
So there's a thing that's been <laughs> blowing up in church world. Um, it is this mm-hmm. article uh, by um, Alexander Lang, um, who up until very recently uh, was the senior pastor at First Presbyterian um, of Arlington Heights. Um, and he wrote a blog, I mean, he preached a sermon, but he wrote a blog post entitled Departure, colon, Why I Left the Church. Um, and so he's been in about as long as I have. He's 10 years. Um, and he left the ministry, right? And a lot of it is, um, what ministry turns out to be like, you know, what you think it is versus how it turns out. I love all the memes. It's like how it started and how it's going. Right. And, and like that, you know, pastor, I think every pastor lives the, how it started and how it's going meme. Um, some of it is this moment that we live in, right? Um, there's a lot of trauma um, that is inherent to the job that doesn't necessarily get processed. Then it gets amplified by things like the pandemic and the political division that only makes it harder. Um, some of what he talks about is what I call the Matthew 1036 problem that one's foes shall be members of one's own household. Um, you're basically a, you, he calls it the thousand bosses. Um, you have a thousand bosses, right? And he had a, a member of his congregation that was a state politician and said, no, 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 I won't join a church committee. It's too cutthroat. Um, yep. This is like, a, you know, it was a state senator, right? Wouldn't join because it's too cutthroat, right? And like we live through that. And he also talks about that Christianity. And I think this is, this is like he is better at saying it than we are. Um, something that we touch on too, that like a fixed growth mindset, a fixed versus growth mindset that a lot of young clergy, um, we got into this, or a lot of clergy got into this business. We want to change people, change the church, change the world. And most people in church pews have a fixed mindset. They just want what they want. They want to be retold and reconfirmed that how right they are, how comfortable they are. They want uh, to do it the way they've always done it, and they don't want to change. Well, they want to feel good. They want to be reinforced that how they've always done it is the divine way. Right. Um, Carl Bart would that's have, just how God works. Right. This is this is the like you know Carl Bart, uh, my favorite piece of Bart theology that is like yeah most of what we do in church is absolute shenanigans. It doesn't matter. It's all like it is whose line is it anyways. It is the games are made up and the points don't matter. Um, <laughs> Until those very rare moments where Jesus breaks through, but most of the time we're worshiping ourselves and not God. Um, and, and that's really comfortable. Um, and so he's leaving. Um, he, and he gets into a, I, I, we're going to post it in the show notes. Um, and, and so if you're, no matter what platform you're watching it on, um, you'll get a, you'll have a link to his post. It's very, he wrote a poem at the end that talks about his time. It, it's very well written. Um, but it touches on a lot of these pieces of, why pastors are quitting. Um, And some of it that he talks about, and this is something that I resonate with a lot, is what people see us do versus what this job is, is ludicrous, right? Like, I I get the, the joke that isn't funny. Don't you just work on Sunday? No. No. Because, because, yeah, like, I am the front man of a weekly show, right? I, I do a monologue. Um, we call it the sermon. I write a monologue every week, you know. I have about the same writing burden as John Oliver does. Um, 
you know, I have, I have a writing burden of John Oliver and I've got to then host the show. Right. Um, and so I've got to be, you know, Mr. Personality, whatever. I happen to be a trained actor. And so that part's okay. Then he talks about you got to be the CEO, um, or Emily, in your case, the COO of, of, yeah. of, of, a, of a, you know, scrappy, mildly um, hopeless nonprofit. Um, got to be the fundraiser, got to be, be the, the counselor fun- to the people. Right, which means have to take, show people grace and love no matter how poorly they treat no you. No matter how badly they bludgeon you, and they will. Um, yes. And like you become, and this is, this comes up in my marriage a lot, that I have become community secret keeper. And everyone assumes I tell Sydney, my wife, um, all the things that happen in the church. I don't, right? That like, to the point where then I don't tell her things that she should know about friends and family. Um, like we, we, my friend of mine just had a kid and he had to spend some more time in the, extra time in the hospital. Um, and then she would ask me like, hey, How's that kid? Oh, right. I'm supposed to tell you this medical stuff. Right. Because I have 10 years of just absorbing everyone's medical, everyone's deep tragedy, everyone's like, you know, who is experiencing spousal abuse. You know, I, you know, I remember it distinctly a day where you and I did a day of laundry so that maybe we could like help someone that was being abused, like help, like, alleviate the reason for abuse for a little while so that maybe they would have an opportunity to whatever like we but that's that's the part that it's really hard to explain i my mother was trying to explain my job to my grandmother the other day and she was like but i couldn't put it into words like what do you do right now because even if you tell people you're a pastor Right. If you're not a pastor in the traditional sense, if you're a digital pastor, if you're, you right. know, like, how do you tell people, but what do you do all day? Right. And what so you, do you actually do? And so he, you know, Alexander Lang, Lane's at like all of these competent, I guess, I, his right. article is very well formatted. Dyslexic me can get there. <laughs> um, but but on top of having to be this pillar of virtue, you yeah. have to be this so, example so, put yeah, on a so, pedestal by people, right? Professional speaker. CEO, counselor, fundraiser, by the way, fundraiser of the people you're counseling, Um, human resources director. Yeah, that's what I did a lot of my day to day was like managing staff conflict, master of ceremonies, which to me is the same as number one. And then, oh, oh, by the way, your personal morality must be above above reproach. And I 100% echo that. Yes. You must be transparent and honest and live with integrity and everyone must know it. Yeah. All of the time. All the time. Yes. And, by the way, your family as well. Uh-huh. God help you if you have a screaming two-year-old, which I God. do. <laughs> God help your families. And, well, and I feel like there's a lot of parallel here between the great resignation of pastors and the great resignation of educators. Yeah. For the same reason. Because there was this huge traumatic event of uh-huh. a pandemic. And you would think... After realizing how much teachers do when people had to keep their kids at home, when they had to homeschool, when they had to, you know, completely change the format of education for an entirety of almost part of a year. Um, As teachers were trying to think outside the box and make sure that our children were still educated. And yet we came out on the other side of this pandemic 
without teacher raises, without teacher appreciation. We well, gave him a pat on the back for a little while. And, 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 and then the divided political structure has just dumped a lot of extra on teachers, right? Like my yes. wife works for Houston Independent School District and – you know, I I guess I can talk about this. I'm not I'm not under the district's social media policy, but like you know, they're caught up in this. Like there, you know, there are now schools in HISD where a teacher is on camera all the time. Yeah. Um, and if they deviate from the script, they will be talked to. Right. Like, anyways, it is big brother. This is 1984 in a classroom. Yeah, literally um, horrible. And it has a suitably 1984 ish name called the NES schools, the new education system. It's great. Yes. Um, It's a it in no way sounds like authoritarian uh, nightmares. Um, But like so he gives like really thoughtful expression to I think a lot what is happening to a lot of clearly a lot of us and certainly many of us right like, i mean this article has been read over 130,000 times like clearly it has struck a chord yeah. with people and it it speaks to why now half of pastors have thought about leaving the business um because some of it is just what you think this job is and what it turns out to be is just different right yes. Um, and some of that you either enjoy it or you don't, right? I happen to enjoy the business side. Um, and so part of how I stay in this, have stayed in the saddle for 10 years, um, is I happen to enjoy the business side. And so I spent a good chunk of the day bogged down in the business side. And I, you know, that happens to be something I get life from. Um, but not everyone does. Um, and certainly the, you know, personalities that tend to go to seminary are not, that there's not necessarily a clean crossover there. Um, you also like the, the expectations of like, you are also then expected to change the world. And by the way, you're subject to a thousand bosses who may beat up on you, who may take a run at you, who may try to fire you. Um, not because of gross incompetence, but because they don't agree with your interpretation of scripture. And then have thus declared you a heretic. And like this happens with some regularity. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think about my own arc. Um, so we were talking about this before the show. The actual lockdown was not the super traumatic bit. Um, it For us, it was, for me, it was the after, right? right? Because we were in rural East Texas. And so that meant that our lockdown had to end in May of 2020, whether yes. we liked it or not. And frankly, we didn't. We really um, didn't. And like I was my, really pregnant at that time and was not really safe to come back to public well, meetings. And my immune system sucks. Um, and I am a public health practitioner. Like I have a master's in public health and I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this data and I'm going, yeah, no, this is about to break bad y'all. Um, and, but it turns out yeah, the summer of 2020, it broke really bad and we couldn't shut back down because we knew like, to shut back down would to kill the church. Like we got trapped. Politically, in this- it would kill the church. We kill the church. Um, we ended up having, t- you know, to shut back down in December of 2020 because 15 percent of our church had COVID. Um, and even that, like, we lost some major families. We lost some major families because we didn't open back up soon enough. 
and we lost some major families because we shut back down again and opened back up three weeks later. Yep. Um, and even the like nature, like we tried to have all these precautions that then everyone immediately threw to the wind. And so I'm sitting here going, and this is, you know, this is pre vaccine. This is pre any of that. And so that was when we were, because we got pretty good at the digital ministry stuff. Like, we the actual shutdown was not so bad. Was we not did so okay bad. during that. We did like you know it was that was probably some of the psychologically healthiest I've been, and this might say a lot about this job and me, but like <laughs> that was probably some of the most psychologically healthy I've been in my adult life. I ran six days a week. Um, I I have never been home so much since elementary school. Um, elementary school was the last time I was home that consistently, mm-hmm. um, and. Like that 12 for us, it was about 12 weeks. That 12 weeks weirdly, like, you know, I lost weight. I didn't like my pandemic weight gain wasn't until after, right? Like I lost weight. So I was running, you know, I was running like 25 miles a week or whatever. Like it was great. We had more time for self-care. We were right. not doing all of the other. It, it was the, it was the hundred bosses that we were, yeah. I mean, we were still accountable to, but it was not the, all day, well, they every didn't, day but they didn't control my calendar, right? Like, right. It, it wasn't like, and this is an important part of ministry, but it's a, a part that you forget is like, okay, so I had a thing that started at 7, or I had a thing that started at 6.30, right? Um, and so the meeting got over at 7.30, 7.45, and then like three people needed to talk to me afterwards, which is important. And then just as I'm like sitting down in my office to either like finish a script or um, just pack up, someone comes into my office and needs pastoral care. And next thing I know, it's 10 o'clock. Yep. Right. As I say, as we're recording this at 9, 8.55, right? Right. Um, like that's the stuff that for me went away um, during the lockdown because everybody so, was home. So I was was home. So then on top of that, there is just the stress of knowing that what I'm doing is maybe just wrong, right? Because I am opening up a disease vector, um, and I know this, right? Like the science is pretty clear on that. Um, and so that kind of stretch of May of 2020 to when I went on paternity leave on January, luckily for everybody, on January 6th of 2021, um, lucky for my career, I did not preach uh, the Sunday after January 6th because I went on paternity leave on the 6th. Um, and I just ran a writer's room for other preachers um, on that for that Sunday because I didn't have to I didn't have to talk. Um, and so I could just, you know, give some other writers some ideas. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was to me, that's where the real pandemic trauma comes from. Um, and then that trying to open back yeah. up and keep your people safe and yeah. get your people back and and yeah. and and right. And that, and that on top of, you know, this job is because of the thousand bosses who you have to love, even as they make a run at you. Right. Like that's. There is, there's always trauma in this job. We went through something that I think for everyone was traumatic and that that trauma was just played out in different ways. For some folks, it was the lockdown or for some folks, the lockdown went on for way longer, right? They didn't meet for a year. Um, And we were probably sometimes sitting there fantasizing about what, what would it be like to not, but like everyone's trauma is different. Um, Right. 
but like that merely, I think where this great resignation comes from is the high level. It's not low level. It's high level trauma of this job spiked. And then we come back from the pandemic um, into a hyper polarized where it just becomes almost impossible to talk in the world. Anything without having people interpret what you are saying into whatever double meaning they want it to fit. Right. Trying to twist it into their own words into their own worldview when you're really not trying to speak to a worldview you're trying to speak to a a heavenly kingdom and you have to figure out the like exact ways to talk that doesn't set off the dog whistle politics yes but that also tells the truth right like jesus just has some stances on some things um and you know i i i would would love to see, you know, I guess we know what happened to Jesus. They killed him. Right. right. <laughs> and so, so is your next sermon going to be the one that gets you run out of town with a pitchfork and, right. you know, or, or not. Um, right. But, Which, but if you're not preaching that, then are you doing your duty right. as a pastor to bring the authentic word of God to people? And on top of that, by the way, your personal morality still needs to be above reproach. Yes. Right. And that's where like, you know, um, if if and, and, and we, we tend to be we tend to be fairly religious people. And so things like integrity matter, uh, you know, there, there's probably great ways to make money in this business, but most of them lack integrity. Um, and so like Alex Lang gives expression to, I think, something that we've all like, you know, I talked about this before at you know at at our previous church at the beginning of our work i watched i don't know 50 percent of the church leave in six months right like we built it back into something really beautiful but i got dumped every week for six months right from like june i i I came in in june of 18 until you know end of 18 into early 19 i was just getting dumped all the time and it was often, it was ne- almost never was, oh, it's just us. No, it was often, no, it's you. You, yeah. pastor, are the yes. one killing this church, and that's yes. why we're leaving. Specifically. Yes, yeah, specifically. It's very, very right. personal. It's right. very, very personal. It's not a, it's not, it's not business. It, it, no, it's, it's you. It's personal. No, I mean, I got told more than once that like I drove the Holy Spirit out of the building, which man, if I had that power, holy cow, what a like what because an you ab- have the power of God, what an ability! <laughs> like Moses could receive God, I can literally drive God out. The unstoppable, I have stopped the unstoppable force. Holy cow! Oh, right, but, but for like sake. And, that's, and like I would love if that's the exaggeration. It's not. That is literally. Um, and this went on, some version of went on this even through the pandemic. Um, it wasn't until essentially right middle of the pandemic, kind of end of 2020, that that cycle finally ended. But that was two years of my, two and a half years of my life. Um, and so, like, I don't, this isn't about me processing my trauma. This is merely to say, like, I, I get it. And if we're going to build this thing, like, there's a couple of things. Some of it is, like, you know, easy for me to say as a pastor, like, have realistic expectations for humans. 
yes. who happen to be clergy. Remember right? that your pastor is a person as well. Stop putting them on a pedestal and start supporting them and, well, and standing the, behind them remember and the helping Bi- them when they need them. The Bible only has like one perfect person. Right. Like you could say, be like Moses. Okay. So like fail sometimes and doubt sometimes and get really mad sometimes. Oh, be like a human who is a clergy or be like Elijah. Okay, fine. So like get really depressed. Um, This is me. More likely Um, get really depressed, like wander in the wilderness, maybe lose the will to live for a minute, get nursed back to health, right? Like, okay, Take a nap and eat and then feel (laughs) better about life, right? Right, yeah, like, it's like lying in the desert being fed by angels. Okay, you know, pick a biblical figure, right? Like, no one be like David, please. Fidelity, friends. Fidelity. Fidelity matters, yeah. Fidelity matters. Um, (laughs) Don't kill your general, right? Like, you know, like... You know, even like, you know, even the ones we think of as relatively better, like Joseph or Esther, right? Like they are also not perfect. Esther has to be prompted by Mordecai to do what she did. Which, you know, I named Multiple it, chi- times. I named it right. child Esther after yeah. Esther, right? So I'm not degrading Esther or Moses or Joseph or any. Joseph, incredibly braggy teen. Got a lot. He grew up. But like. Right. But braggy. even these. Great characters needed prompting, needed encouragement, right. needed people behind them standing in their corners saying, you got this. Let's go do this. Right. Peter, this is what God wants you to do, so let's go do it. Peter right? denied Christ three times. Famously, Paul had a past of trying to kill Christians and occasionally absolutely loses it. Galatians. Um, and Paul deals with, like, people trying to drive him out of ministry People trying to, you know, talk down to him. You know, Paul had 10,000 bosses. I mean, Paul had the thousand. Read the letters alongside Acts. Like, Paul had the thousand bosses problem, too. Some of, the, like, so part of why I try to tell the biblical stories the way I do is because I think it's what the Bible says. But some of it is also so we start to have reasonable expectations of each other. Because if we don't have people to lead these churches, because we've run them all out of town or traumatized them. Expected too much of them. Like that's not going to work. But the other part of it is, and this is something I really resonated with Alexander Lang's argument is we need to be open to a growth mindset because we need to do something different. Just celebrating our correctness will not save the world. Right. That's actually, like, not to be whatever, but I'm going to be. This is our show. Um, That's what the Pharisees get wrong, right? Like, the Pharisees, biblically, phenomenal, right? Paul tell you that. Um, They believed that, you know, we should follow the law really well and then not get sent into exile, which is an admirable goal. A lot of what Jesus says actually echoes what the Pharisees themselves would say. But the Pharisees became self-congratulatory of how right they are, and they began to shun people who were not considered so right, like lepers and women with interesting pasts and sinners and tax collectors, the people who failed. And they began to exclude them. And so Jesus would eat with them, and they would freak out because those people are wrong. This is not how it's supposed to be. And Jesus is like, no, dog. 
you are congratulating yourself and your rightness so much that you've become wrong. And so, I, you know, and I get, this really is, you know, I have dealt with, read that article and realize that, like, I read that article and I see myself in it. Like, I have, I have had so many, he writes a better poem than I could ever write, but, like, I have had those thoughts. I have lived those moments. He just puts it better than I can. And so part of this show is maybe our own version of how to not not resign. How to Uh, not do that. How How do do we continue in spite of that? How do we work in spite of the working conditions, right? How do we remember that that's, that our goal is bigger than ourselves, right? How do we remember that God still got this? And I don't want to take away from him leaving. Like, I, it sounds like he made the right choice for him. And I think a lot of pastors who I have seen, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing my piece for next week. And, you know, I'm going to talk about a, a path, you know, we're actually doing the church conflict tease for next week. We're doing the church conflict passage um, in how to settle church conflict passage in Matthew, uh, Matthew 18. And, I, and I'm writing about a friend of mine who, um, was was a pastor went to seminary with me um and is now an agnostic right not just left the ministry left the church in part because of their experiences of being a pastor um and so i some of this is i a larger pitch but some of this is like can we shift this conversation to being about not letting go of our message, but growth and change. Right. Can we restart this thing? Can yet- we innovate enough? Can right. we be flexible enough? It's, it's the F word, right? Flexibility. Yeah. We yeah. call this a, you know, a dirty word sometimes, but really we have to be flexible. We have to be willing to move where the spirit is moving. Right. Because you want, you want the pastor, you, know, you read the profiles, right? Um, you want the pastor that can, you know, save the church. And a lot of that gets placed on us, right? Like drive the numbers up, right? Even in a world that is becoming less religious and more secular, drive the numbers up. And then you come with the pitch to, you know, re- not because the numbers aren't the thing. It's about relationships, but like to build those relationships and they go, well, that's too different. What about my thing? And I'm like, one or the other friends, one or the other, right? Um, well, we've always done it this way. Great. How's that going? And is the people that this is an open question. This is an open question in my own life, right? Um, as I watch friends of mine um, also undergo the great resignation, um, like it's an open question as to whether the people with the mindset to change this thing stick around in things that look like modern churches or will they just leave go do their own thing and out of that will come a whole new thing right the church itself will never die it's the spirit of god moving in the world right we talk about that a ton next week but it's an open question what do we do and can we do it and so i if we're going to restart this thing if we're going to make it read alexander lang's peace and understand that like this represents what a lot of us go through 
that's not really just about us, but like we need leaders to lead this thing. And tune in next week because we're also going to have yeah. our friends from uh, the Spiritual But Not Religious podcast. Speaking of people who are doing interesting things in the name of God, not necessarily in the walls of a church or in the organization of the church um, because of exactly that. Um, it's not just pastors, friends. It's everybody. Yeah. So tune in next week for sure. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, and that's as good a place as any. Uh, we've ran long. Um, I, yeah, uh-huh. Um, we talked a lot about all the trauma. I feel like we've all grown <laughs> as people. Um, Had right? a therapy session during therapy this. Session. We process some things. Process some things, you know, whatever. Uh, at a seminary professor's like, hey, you can talk about your stuff as long as you're not doing it to live process it, right? Do it with a purpose, right? This is us trying to echo, like, what, the, what's driving this great resignation? It's real, and it is a risk. Anyways, if you have feedback for us, uh, you can email us at thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. It's thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. You can also post comments on any of the things. This goes up on Facebook. This goes up on YouTube. This goes up on our website, all of which is Servants Now. Um, our TikTok has, has happened. So we're, we have a tech, you know, if you want like short, punchy takes on the pod, um, you can at, at servants now on TikTok, on Instagram. Um, we're all over the worldwide, man. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, this show, um, and everything else we do here, um, is product of the servants now media lab at servants of Christ United Methodist parish, deep in the heart of Southeast Houston. And is made possible in part by an innovators grant of the Texas annual conference of the United Methodist church. If you want to see all the things that we are doing, go to all of those places. It's servants now everywhere. Um, but also go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And we'll see you next week.